Hey everyone, welcome back to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. Today we have a special interview with author, journalist, Robert Kaplan. He has written more than 20 books focusing on foreign policy in the Middle East, a whole variety of things that he's covered over his more than four decade career. His newest book is called The Loom of Time. It discusses the lessons from the history of the Middle East and how we can apply them to today and what it means for U.S. foreign policy. The Middle East, situated between Europe and China, uh, has been the central focus going back millennia. And what Kaplan does in this book is really focus on the history of the various empires that have tried to control the region and what that has meant uh, to the current predicament. Uh, we basically take a tour of the Middle East, discussing everything from Saudi Arabia, Iran, Israel, Turkey, uh, what it means for U.S. foreign policy, how China is effectively trying to be the next great power in the region. Uh, it's a fascinating journey, and he provides some incredible insight. I think you'll really like it. And he really helps to explain, especially what the past 20 years has meant uh, as far as the U.S. involvement in the region, the invasion, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, the withdrawals, and whether the U.S. can ever really get out of the Middle East. Before we get started here, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to podcasts like this one and extra content, Q&As, deep dives over on our members-only Instagram account. It's a way to support what we're doing here at Mo News, keep us going and growing, support independent journalism. And the added plus is all that extra content. You can get it right now for just $7 a month. We're actually offering a free month right now with the code Mo News Trial, one word, Mo News Trial, or two free months on the annual package. Again, thank you for considering and thank you for your support for Mo News. All right, everyone. With that, here's today's conversation. So I'm joined here by Robert Kaplan, a uh, longtime journalist, author, going back uh, five decades now, Robert? Four. Four decades. Four. Sorry, I didn't mean to age you there. Um, I appreciate you joining me for um, this conversation about your 22nd book, uh, Loom of Time, I love the way you weave together um, basically centuries of history to try to explain the current predicament, the current situation. Um, as we speak here, we'll get to the Middle East in a second, but uh, right now, top of mind for many Americans is what's happening in Ukraine as far as U.S. foreign policy is concerned. Um, talk to me, you know, as we speak here, we're about 18 months into the war. The U.S. has spent more than $100 billion to defend the Ukrainians. No real boots on the ground, so to speak, yet the already... Despite that, increasing feeling within the U.S., especially in one political party, that it's time to pack our bags and go home. Um, you talk, you take the long view when it comes to American foreign policy, our involvement in the world, especially since World War II. Um, where are we in terms of Ukraine and what does it say about U.S. foreign policy? Well, the Biden administration has actually been very cautious over the last 18 months. Yes, it's put $100 billion into support for the Ukraine war effort, which is real and which has dramatically weakened Russia as a great power. Russia is losing capacity in Central Asia, in the Far East, etc. Um, you know, the question of can Russia's empire continue is now, you know, you know, it's it's doubtful. So what we've seen in the last 18 months is the most effective weakening of another power by the United States since the first Gulf War in 1990-1991, uh, executed by the elder Bush administration. That being said, um, the administration has been cautious. It's not, it's not given Ukraine long-range missiles. It's not given them F-16s. And the result so far appears to be a stalemate on the ground, a World War I-type stalemate with, uh, you know, minefields, um, you know, various layers of Russian defenders, uh, just throwing, you know, just throwing human capital and minefields into the mix to slow down that Ukrainian offensive. Um, but the administration is in a bind because if it gives 
Ukraine what it, everything that it wants, it can risk, uh, you know, Russia taking more dramatic action, be it cyber attack, massive cyber attacks, weapons of mass destruction, or maybe even the, you know, the toppling of Putin, which could lead to a worse regime coming to power or, you know, or a real weakening in the Russian state. And Russia, remember, is the world's, you know, has enough nuclear weapons to destroy the United States several times over. So the administration is sort of in a bind. You know, it can't satisfy everybody. And if this, you know, if the Ukrainians don't make a, some sort of a dramatic breakthrough in, say, four weeks, say, uh, we're really into like the fall and the winter and the war will just grind on and continue. Um I wouldn't blame the administration. I think it's acted prudently during the whole way. It hasn't satisfied everybody. But, you know, problems in foreign policy, as I explain in my new book, are hard. You know, it's really hard. You just can't provide aid and advice and every place becomes a, a stable democracy. That's not how the world works. Well, it's especially uh, the world that we learned about uh, from U.S. foreign policy in the past 20 years, you know, it's interesting because you lay out, you know, we intervened in Iraq, obviously, you know, overwhelmingly, and it didn't work out, right? We got chaos. You also write, in Syria, we didn't get involved and we got chaos. It appears here when it comes to Ukraine, we're, we're sort of trying some middle ground here. And it's still not clean, not easy, and not overwhelmingly successful. It's not a middle ground. It's heavily, it's, we're heavily involved, you know, except that, you know, we haven't given the Ukrainians everything they want and we haven't put boots on the ground. Um, you know, the, but, you know, you can't put boots on the ground here or else the American public would have soured on the war over a year ago, you know? Right. And again, as I just said, if you can't give the Ukrainians everything they want, because, you know, that risks things that any American administration cannot risk in terms of the protection of the American public. So you lay out in the Middle East sort of Dickinsonian, it's the, as opposed to best of times, worst of times, everything has changed and nothing has changed in uh, the decades you've been covering. Ex- explain what you mean by that. What, what I and I lay this out in the first chapter is yes, there have been a lot of you know there's been a lot of dramatic media events. You know, if you listen to the media, everything has changed in the Middle East. Everything's always changing. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to do in this book is take a longer view, based on you know having been back and forth to the region over 50 years and been a foreign correspondent for 40 years, um, uh, um, essentially. And, you know, if you look at it, like take Afghanistan, it's had war, upheaval, chaos, but it's still the same weak state, you know, barely governed from the center than it was 50 years ago. Um, you know, or take Tunisia, mm-hmm. which is, you know, which like 50 years ago is the most European uh, state, you know, the most European influenced state in North Africa. It's, um, you know, it, you know, it has no, no great ethnic or sectarian divides. It's still, despite its, its slippage back into, uh, into authoritarianism, still mm-hmm. provides the best building blocks for any future stable democracy. Egypt is the same group of Nasserite pharaohs, as I call it, you know, who are governing Egypt as 50 years ago. Um, Saudi Arabia, it's the same dynasty, you know, you know, uh, you know, it's the same dynasty and on and on I go. There's a lot of places that seem to have changed, but in fact, are very similar to what they were 50 years ago. There are um, elements of geography, of culture that simply do not dramatically shift. And these things are apparent to, to people on the ground, but do not make it into the, into the strictures of news headlines, which is obsessed with novelty. It's interesting because, you know, at the time, at a time where the major power centers are the U.S., China, rising India, Europe, obviously Putin trying his best to stay uh, relevant there and continue to exercise his policies. The Middle East still dominates our attention, our treasure, our time, our blood. Why is that in 2023? 
Because as I lay out in the book, the Middle East is that great area between Europe and China, essentially, between this, the, the stable democracy, Western democracies of Europe, and the deep, you know, civilizations of India and China, mm -hmm. you know, of India and China. And in the middle, in this vast, arid middle, you have the states of the Middle East, which are far less stable far more tumultuous uh, than, than on either of the two ends of, of Eurasia. And as I lay out, the Middle East has not found a solution to the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, you know, still. And the Ottoman Empire collapsed a hundred years ago. Right. These were the Ottoman um, Turks that dominated the region for almost 400 years. Yes, from Algeria to Iraq. And that's why the subtitle of this book is Between Empire and Anarchy. It's not between a, a democracy and authoritarianism. That's an American obsession. That's an American elite obsession that, you know, there's, there's something deeper going on, which is before 400 years of Ottoman imperial rule, you had Hundred, many hundreds of years of dynastic rule by Umayyads, Abbasids, Fatimids, Hafsids, and others. Um, and the, and the, and the imperialism from the West in the form of the British and the French only came at the end of this process after World War One in the 20th century. So you have this, this massive influence over thousands of years of imperial rule, which has impeded the development of states. And with impeding the development of states, you don't have, um, you don't have the stable building blocks for what we want to see, democracy. So there's imperialism on one end, empire. And on the other end is anarchy, you know, meaning that the, 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 uh, the goal in many countries is still the preservation and the erection of order, of basic order. It's all about order. You know, you know Egypt had an Arab Spring in 2011. Right. It collapsed into disorder by 2012, 2013. Order came back in the form of the military once again asserting power. Um, people don't like that, but, you know, in the first two or three years of military rule after 2013, as I point out, you know, the military, the military ruler Abdel Fattah al-Sisi was actually quite popular, even among liberal intellectuals in Egypt, because the disorder was so vast during 2011 and 2013, they welcomed back order. All right, now we're in the second decade of his rule, and he's clearly not popular. And Egypt is, is you know, is once again calcifying. You know, you know, it's in a in, it's in a calcified authoritarian regime. Whereas the the Saudi Arabia and the Gulf countries, um, there's a basic social contract there that you know that Americans don't like to admit to, and the social contract is the leaders provide order, they provide stability, they provide prosperity. They provide smooth transitions from one leader to the other when somebody dies. Um, you know, there's no anarchy. There's no, um, no, you know, very little instability. And in return, the population accepts the rule of whatever dynasty it is we're speaking of and whatever. Right. Country. And the lack of human but, rights and the lack of Western democracy and, and the stuff that we prioritize, right? Well, there actually are quite a bit of human rights when you're on the ground there. You know, Saudi Arabia has been, in terms of rights for women and, and contract and other things, has been reforming at a rather significant pace. But, you know, it's not our, you know, American... It's not England or France or the US or Canada, no, of course. No, no, no. As one Saudi said to me, he said, We've chosen liberty over democracy, because if we had democracy, as you Americans are trying to shove down our throat, we would have rule by the Muslim Brotherhood or something like that, because they would, because they're the only organized force outside of the dynasty who could win an election, so to speak. So, you know, we have a choice between, uh, between democracy and liberty, and we've chosen liberty, you know? Um, uh, it's, it's sort of it the same situation they saw in um, in Egypt, where they had an election. Islamic extremists won. 
Uh, it's the same issue the Palestinians have in regards to Hamas. That if you actually open it up, the the result would not be something the West would like either. Right. As one um, one Egyptian former foreign minister said to me, he said, "You Americans want chaos." You intervened in Iraq. You tell you told us in 2011 we want uh, elections. We had elections. We got chaos. He said, "Thank God for General Al Sisi. If Iran had had a General Al Sisi in 1979, there would have been no clerical regime." you know, and Iran today would be in much better shape. So that's the kind of thing you hear. You know, um, you know, I also spoke to a lot of human rights advocates and, you know, uh, um, throughout the region, but even they are more, they don't see things the way Americans see things. You know, America tries to define progress or lack of progress in terms of have they held an election or not. You know, Um, and what what this book, what this book is about, it's about everything else that doesn't involve holding elections, good and bad. You know, it's it's interesting because you're laying out what what America gets wrong or or the simplicity of our foreign policy, especially uh, especially the last couple of decades. Right. Our multi trillion dollar attempt to remake the region. You know, uh, I, I don't know whether your marker is 9-11 or your marker is the invasion of Iraq. And of course, there's Afghanistan. And we speak now uh, two years since that, uh, you know, withdrawal, that chaotic withdrawal that, you know, brought back the Taliban. Lay out for me the lessons learned from these past 20 years of U.S. kind of super engagement in the region, this attempt to remake the region. What was accomplished? Did we fix anything? Did we break everything? Uh, first of all, the basic American assumption was that our historical experience with mass democracy over 250 years is more important than your historical experience. That when we're talking about Libya or or, or Yemen or any other place, Libya's history doesn't matter for Libya. Only American history matters for Libya. Same with Yemen. And that's actually a form of isolationism. Though it goes by the, uh, the the label of democratic universalism and internationalism, it's really isolationism because it shows a lack of interest in that particular country's history or background or some of the some of the things that would impede you know a, a cold turkey democracy. In terms of you know what we've accomplished, we we've maintained strong, a strong security relationship with all the countries of the Arabian Gulf and Saudi Arabia, with Israel, with Egypt, with Tunisia, with Morocco. Um, You know, that still holds. And that's been a great American accomplishment since 1945 in the region. What we got wrong was this assumption that our historical experience is some is a gift to the world, that it's more important than your historical experience. And from that has emanated all the mistakes um, and the problems. I think now where the region is at the moment is that, um, you know, where for the first time in, in thousands of years, actually, the Middle East is in a post-imperial phase. There's no empire to keep order or to influence things. It isn't just the, you know, the Abbasids and the Ottomans and the British and French in the Levant who are gone. Um, it's also the American and Soviet Cold War empires are gone. And that provided a lot of stability to individual regimes as oppressive as they they were in, you know, in the Middle East. I could go from country to country, from Morocco to Pakistan. And throughout the Cold War, every regime in that in those countries was either pro-American or pro-Soviet. And that provided stability, you know, uh, for that country at that at that time. That has not completely disappeared because the Russians, you know, who succeeded from the Soviets still have influence in some places. And we we still have a lot of influence, but it's not like the Cold War. That's why I, I write in the book that the Middle East is in a post-imperial phase, so to speak. 
And um, and it's try and what has that led to? It's led to the individual regional powers themselves to try to come up with a system of order. So you have and 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 again with some outside help. So the Chinese, you know, or you know, orchestrate a resumption of diplomatic relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia. The Biden administration, previously the Trump administration, you know, organized a kind of um, rapprochement between Israel and a number of moderate Sunni Arab states. Um, uh, And now the Biden administration is building on that by trying to organize a rapprochement between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia was behind the Abraham Accords. It acquiesced to them, but it didn't officially join them. Right. So the Abraham Accords. So just to explain to people, Abraham Accords between Israel, uh, a couple of Gulf states there, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Bahrain, etc. The goal is to basically create this new Middle East and, and sort of create a, a general peace between Israel and the Arab world. Yeah, with the conservative Sunni Arab world, which is much of the Arab world. Um, remember that the Gulf states, seeing that were, it's post-imperial American power isn't what it was, they face this, um, this significant threat from Iran, um, and they see Israel emerging as a high-tech cyber war power. And so, they, and so it was very cold-blooded what they did. They basically organized the, a merger you know, a corporate merger between them and the Israelis in order to get, you know, to to buy some protection for themselves, um, you know, from Israeli military prowess, uh, so to speak. And that's what, um, uh, you know, there was a joke made that um, when Jared Kushner, uh, uh, former President Trump's advisor for the region at the time, you know, thought he could orchestrate orchestrate some um, deal between Israel and the Palestinians. And he found out that, you know, that was no going. But meanwhile, he noticed that although the, what, what the Israelis and the Palestinians wanted was a nice divorce, you know, meanwhile, Israel was having like an affair with these Gulf Arab states behind the scenes, you know? So, you know, that's where, you know, the Trump administration got it into their heads that this is the next step. It's not with the Palestinians. It's with, it's with the Arabian Gulf countries. So, and all this is very cold blooded. It's to, it's to buy, it's to come up with new security arrangements that will replace the absence of of empire in some form or another. Yeah, so you talk about empire here. We talked about the Ottoman Turks running the show for you know several centuries there, 400 years, the British and the French coming in, then the Americans and the Soviets coming in, then the Americans doing it solo. Uh, to what extent is the Middle East broken because of the rest of the world? I mean, is it pretty, pretty simple there? That's a very serious question because one of the points I make in this book is that um, – you know, you know, the, the West, you know, by its very proximity, its very intellectual and technological development since Napoleon has had an has had an enormous influence on the Middle East, which used to be called the Near East because it was near to the West, and and that influence was not only benign. For instance, um, you know, in Syria and Iraq, you had Baathist states. It was Baathism that was really at the root of this of the Iraqi and Syrian collapse, because Baathism was essentially totalitarianism mixed with East Bloc communism. You know, communist East Bloc communism. And where did the Arabs get that from? They got it from the West. Uh, you know, it was under the influence of the West. It was, you know, in the 1920s, 1930s, when Baathism became an intellectual movement, um, you know, Europe was, it was becoming more fascist. It was becoming more communist. So that, you know, Baathism was sort of a Western export in a certain way to the, you know, to Iraq and Syria, which really devastated those states and made them so easy for the Iranians to influence because between, between Iran, which is a deep, rich, 
well-organized civilization. Between Iran and the Mediterranean, there was nothing but the ruins of Baathism, you know? So when those states collapsed, one with an American invasion, one without an American invasion, um, you know, you know, Iranian influence just rolled over right to the Mediterranean. So I want to talk a bit about, you, you spend some time talking about Saudi Arabia and uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince there, who effectively runs runs the country, his vision for what Saudi Arabia needs to look like, uh, you know, our relationship, the U.S.'s relationship with Saudi Arabia goes back decades, uh, largely centered around energy, but a whole variety of things. Um, what when you visit Saudi Arabia and you see what he's trying to build, um, talk to folks about how they should view that country, what it is trying to be, and uh, what future does MBS see for his country, especially as the energy economy transitions? Yeah. Keep in mind, Saudi Arabia has been ruled by the same royal family for 100 years. Um, it's had about half a dozen or maybe one or two more leadership transitions during that time. They were all peaceful. In one case, you know, King Faisal was assassinated in 1975, but within 48 hours, the family had gotten together and chose a very good successor, King Khalid, you know, who ruled successfully for years on end afterwards. So it's, 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 you know, it's very stable. You know, none of the kind of chaos of the Arab Spring, uh, you know, very predictable with moderate conservative rulers, one after the other. And as this and because of this, the Saudis said to me repeatedly, you have no lessons to offer us, meaning you, the West. You know, look at what happened in Tunisia, Libya, Yemen. We want no part of that, no part of your American democratic dreams, you know, we want stability, you know. Um, all right. So that's one side of it. The other side is that um, all these leaders, as I said, were moderate conservatives and old. And then the youngest, I believe he was the youngest uh, uh, son of uh, Abdulaziz ibn Saad, King Salman became king at a very elderly age and made his 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 own son the crown prince and in line to succeed him. And, you know, and this happened, I believe, in 2017. And from Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, MBS as he is known, um, for his vision is to prepare Saudi Arabia in all respects for a post-petroleum age. Um, not completely post-petroleum, but an age where as the decades go on, Saudi Arabia will earn less and less, comparatively speaking, from its hydrocarbons. And to do that, he has to make the society itself dynamic, entrepreneurial, self-sustaining. And that leads to a bunch of things. What does it lead to? It leads to, well, if you want a dynamic entrepreneurial culture, you've got to liberate the 50% who are no longer, who aren't part of that business culture, the women, you know? So, you know, you know, liberating the women, allowing them to work, allowing them to drive cars, allowing them to go unaccompanied by mail, allowing them to wear their, you know, not to wear, um, you know, facial or, you know, hair covering if they choose, was all part of making Saudi Arabia more entrepreneurial because it because women women have joined the workforce. You know, I, I don't, the statistics are in the book. They're rather dramatic. But, you know, you see women working behind desks everywhere now in Saudi Arabia. And it's a, you know, it's a big change. That's part of it. Another part of it is to normalize perhaps with diplomatic relations in the future, perhaps without, but in any case to normalize relations with Israel, you know, in order to get investment from Israel's high tech sector into Saudi Arabia. In other words, normalizing with Israel, uh, liberating women are all, you know, and having a vision 
a vision for the future, which isn't perfect, which is grandiose, which has its white elephant project, but nevertheless, having a vision for the future that will make Saudi Arabia self-sustaining, even as its oil and gas business plays gradually less and less a role in the economy. You know, as one Saudi intellectual said to me, he said, our population, you know, is going to demand the same ease of doing business, you know, the same freedoms as in other Arab countries, as in Israel, as in Europe, as time goes on. And what Mohammed bin Salman is doing is making a start at this. That all being said, he's also been, according to some arguments, very credible arguments, the most repressive leader in Saudi history. You know, in terms of, you know, if you go against the regime or if you criticize the regime, God help you, you know, in terms of the things that could happen to you. So it's both more repressive and it's less repressive. You know, the murder of the Washington Post column, the opinion columnist Jamal Khashoggi was emblematic of this other side of the, um, of the Saudi regime. MBS wants to have it all. He wants a more dynamic, entrepreneurial, dynamic society. He also wants total control. And so I end the chapter basically saying he probably can't have it all. You know, because as you make a society more entrepreneurial, more dynamic, people will just naturally, organically want more freedoms, you know, and they won't be satisfied with the freedoms you've already given them. They'll want political freedoms, you know, after a certain period of time. So that's where Saudi Arabia is now. It's in this very um, unstable, uncertain moment of transition. You know, it's interesting because, you know, we've been trying to export the American um, system, American democracy, our general way of doing things. And one place, the Saudis especially, and, and other countries in the Middle East are looking to is China, right? China has developed their own system. And as you talk about, you know, people getting a more entrepreneurial economy, advancing people, demanding more rights, China so far uh, has seemed to be able to figure it out, keep the authoritarianism, keep the one-party state but keep people satiated and satisfied. And wanted you to discuss a bit about how China looks to the region. What lessons, by the way, China has learned from the last 400 years of empires getting involved in the Middle East. Are they going to be more savvy than the rest of us were? Um, And and them exporting their uh, system to the region. All right. With the caveat that China is now entering a period of severe economic problems itself, you know, right. nevertheless, I take your, I, you know, I take your point. Uh, the Saudis said to me repeatedly, we like the Chinese. They buy our oil, they buy our gas. They're our best customer in the world. And guess what? They don't give us lectures about human rights and democracy like you do. You know, you know, so, you know, it's from the Chinese point of view, there's no exporting of their regime values. It's just business. It's very transactional. And the Saudis like that, you know, and the Egyptians like that because it's all based on cold, rational interests. The Chinese are not just investing hundreds tens and in some cases, hundreds of billions in Iran and Saudi Arabia, but also in Egypt, um, in other part in Ethiopia and other parts of the Middle East that I that I cover in the book. And it's all investment. It's a, a lot of it is construction investment designed to soak up male youth unemployment, um, you know, in these countries, particularly Egypt. So the Chinese have a good reputation in the Middle East. Uh, the Chinese also have military goals as well. They've got a a base in Djibouti at the mouth of the Red Sea. You know, they're contemplating a base at Port Sudan. Um, They have uh, a state-of-the-art port with military application in Gwadar in the southwestern tip of Pakistan, which is actually part of the Middle East because it's right by the entrance to the Persian Gulf. Um, So I think actually it's precisely because of growing Chinese power in the Middle East, 
that the Biden administration was motivated to soften its attitude towards MBS and attempt this, uh, you know, this hist- and historic rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Israel, because they realize that if they just stand on their hands and and denounce Saudi Arabia for human rights abuses, the Chinese will gradually, you know, take over the region in terms of, you know, outside influence. Yeah, it's it's interesting because Biden definitely came in, you know, wagging his finger at the Saudis and then also realized the power the Saudis still have, especially when we went to them in the last couple of years to say, hey, can you increase oil production? It would really help our gas prices. Yeah. See, that gets to another problem. That is a purely cold-blooded, realist foreign policy is unsustainable because if you, you know, because sooner or later you'll get vast human rights abuses where the American public will want you to take action. Right. But on the other hand, a purely human rights policy is also unsustainable because sooner or later it will butt up against American national interests and what, you know, and what the public needs and expects from its government. So it's always a matter of this balance, this, you know, this intermediary balance. Yeah, as you said, foreign policy is complicated. I don't want to let you go without talking a couple more things. I want to talk Iran specifically. You know, we we speak as we're approaching one year since the beginning of this Masa Amini protest that at times yeah. looked like they turned into a revolution there, um, Robert. We're more than 40 plus years into the um, Islamic regime there. The U.S. still trying to figure out, I mean, I noticed a couple weeks ago, the deal we made to get some prisoners out. It's unclear if that's a prelude to other things. Where do we stand vis-a-vis Iran? Where does Iran stand in the region? And what does that do to, you know, this sort of post-imperial Middle East? Well, I end my Iran chapter. I think it's the most optimistic part of my book, you know, because my book itself is not pessimistic because the whole concept of the loom of time is that progress will be made in the Middle East, just not according to a Western script, you know. Um, all the time. It will be, you know, it won't be in a linear fashion. It'll be in circles. It'll go around. But progress will be made. But in Iran, I say, look, when the Shah was in power, even though there were all this evidence that he was unpopular, we simply could not imagine a regime without the Shah. And thus, we were totally flabbergasted um, by the clerical regime when it first took power. Then for the last 40 years, you know, 44 years or, you know, or, or, or whatever, we can't imagine a regime beyond the clerics in power. And what I'm saying is we have to start using our imaginations. We have to imagine a post-clerical regime in Iran. You know, during the Masa Amini demonstrations, and even the, the ones like three years earlier in 2019, right before COVID, and in 2009, the Green Revolution, there were people in the street shouting down with the Ayatollahs, down with the regime. You know, you know, things were said openly in the streets, screaming, shouting, that were unheard of for decades, you know. So I think that the, uh, the Iranian regime, as uh, I think it was the analyst Karim Sajapur said it first. He, see, he said to me that the Iranian regime is sort of like a bunch of North Koreans governing a country of South Koreans, you know? And, and in other words, it has a very narrow base of support. It's highly unpopular. It's calcified. Um, it's, you know, it cannot go on like this, you know, and, you know, Iran is the most urbanized, well urbanized, one of the most highly educated countries in the region with 85 million people. And I'm looking forward to a day where you will have a chunk of humanity, 85 million more people integrated into the global economy in a post-clerical Iran. And that's what we have to start imagining at the moment. But does, you know, beyond imagination, does a clerical regime see something like nuclear weapons as their insurance policy to, you know, to ensure lifetime rule? 
that's a serious question. Um, the thing is, it's unclear how nuclear weapons can help them maintain power. You know, it can help them in terms of just having them. It can help them intimidate the Israelis, the Saudis, the Gulf Arabs, and all of that. Because remember, think how nuclear weapons have been used since Hiroshima. After Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they were not used to be actually used. They were used for influence and intimidation value throughout the Cold War by both the Americans and the Soviets, and since 1964 by the Chinese. So I think this, the Iranians want nuclear weapons not to use them, but to, but, but to intimidate all their neighbors, you know, to gain more leverage over their neighbors. So I think that's the issue. I think the Israelis want to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, not because they actually think this, the Iranians would use them. They might, you know, and that's a fear and that's a consideration. But it's more to the fact that imagine in Iran with nuclear weapons, every single crisis between Iran and Israel over Lebanon or whatever, or, or in southern Syria, whatever, would be an existential crisis, you know? Right, right. Every situation now where there's some issue in Gaza with Hamas or Hezbollah or whatever, Iran could say, we're going to bring out the nukes, we're going to bring out the nukes. Sort of, yeah, sort of what yeah. we've seen from uh, Putin and Medvedev in the past year and a half, where it sort of, at some point, it sort of got old. Oh, you guys are talking about nuclear weapons again, but still a legitimate threat. Yeah. You know, that's the question. It's that nuclear weapons, as you just said, would make it, all of these minor regular desultory crises between Israel and Gaza, between Israel and southern Lebanon, it would turn it into something existential. When you speak with uh, the people who think they know the regime in Iran the best, do they see a rational actor there? Or do they see, you know, at the same time, given the religious beliefs, given the threats, a country that's actually would be willing to effectively begin World War III there? Or is it still, is it unknown? I think it, it's an unknown, but it leads in the territory of the rational actor, a very cynical rational actor, which is which is very knowledgeable about how the Shah fell and they don't want it to happen to them, you know? Um, and they, you know, and remember the Masa Amini demonstrations, they were responded to very harshly. People were executed. Right. People were thrown in prison. The regime continues to crack down from those demonstrations because the regime learned from the Shah never be weak. The Shah, you know, was perceived as being weak and ineffectual when the demonstrations against his regime started. It was largely because he was sick and dying of cancer at the time, you know. Um, you know, uh, but the fact is he was seen as weak, as not responding in a strong way. And so the regime is, was very careful during the Masa Amini hijab, anti-hijab demonstrations, uh, which were, I think, September 2022, it will be a year, not to be seen as weak or flinching in any way. So it's hard to talk about the Middle East without talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and I want to end there. Um, you talked about the internal politics playing out in Israel, the whiteboard bent, the 20, what do you call it, a 20 or so year experiment with peace deals here. Um, you know, effectively appears to be dead, but we sit here and there's nearly 15 million Israelis and Palestinians living between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. You discussed earlier, you know, the two sides want a divorce, but how do you do a divorce given how intertwined they are? Um, what is the state of play there? What is the impact of the uh, Abraham Accords and the, the deals Israel is making with the rest of the Arab world and how it impacts the resolution? And what does that resolution even look like at this juncture? Well, John Kerry had said that if Israel doesn't make peace with the Palestinians, it will never have peace with the major countries of the region. That has proven incorrect. Israel, you know, has made peace with quite a number of countries in the region and may in fact do so with the most important country in the region, Saudi Arabia, over the next two years or so. However, the fact that Israel can have, you know, the Arab-Israeli crisis has essentially gone away and been stabilized by the fear of Iran. You know, it was the fear of Iran that has driven all these conservative Sunni Arab states 
to, to mend fences with Israel, so to speak. But that Arab-Israeli crisis does not end the Israeli-Palestinian crisis. And it is, and, and think of it. In it, in it. One thing you didn't say in your description was, and all this occurs, all these people between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean are in a social media age. And one thing we've learned from social media is that one odd tweet. Remember, this is how the Masa Amini demonstration started. It was a social, it was fanned by social media. So you could have a bunch of tweets or whatever could just start another intifada that would be far bloodier than the first ones. You know, social media makes all this unpredictable and unstable. And that's why um, I think that the current situation cannot last. You know, you, you know, at some point, there has to be some sort of a deal. It may have to wait until after Mahmoud Abbas passes from the scene. Or Right. He's, he's the nearly 90-year-old leader of the Palestinians, at least in the West Bank. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it may wait, but I don't think this situation is stable or likely to continue forever. So the Israelis sort of living in a, a fantasy, at least the, the Netanyahu government, et cetera, in terms of uh, hoping that the status quo can just continue perpetually? I think the Netanyahu, you know, the nature of the very, you know, of coalition politics in Israel with the system they have um, means that there's not much long range thinking. You know, it's mainly how do we keep the coalition surviving? You know, you know, how do we get to 61, 61 seats out of 120 in the Knesset? And if we have 61 or more, how do we keep 61 or more? I think the nature of Israeli democracy has led to short range thinking on this. It rewards short range thinking. It doesn't reward long term thinking. Remember, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, can't remember, I believe it was Yigal Alon, the late foreign minister of Israel, uh, wrote a, a big piece. I think it was in Foreign Affairs, the Alon plan, how to give the Palestinians back certain parts of the West Bank where they all lived, and Israel would keep the strategic but less demographically occupied parts of the West Bank. Well, that was a good plan. Had that been acted upon, the Middle East would be different today. Uh, you know, had Arafat accepted the plan between President Clinton and Ehud Barak, you know, the Middle East would be different today. But the fact is, nobody did, and it's all worse now. Right. And, and so the question is, are you an optimist there that somehow a, you know, a post-Abbas regime thinking it'd be more along the lines of, you know, Hamas and Islamic Jihad, etc.? I'm a pessimist on the Israel-Palestinian situation because I think it's unsustainable and it's hard to imagine it being resolved diplomatically, uh, though all kinds of things are possible, you know? Uh, um, you know. And right now, the Biden administration has sort of set that issue aside to an extent, just trying to get a deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Of course, part of that deal, the Saudis would, and this is another thing the Saudis told me, they're very nervous about the Israel-Palestinian crisis for the same reasons I just laid out. In a social media age, it's even more unstable and unpredictable than it was before. Um, and so the Saudis want to see some movement, something to protect them. Because Saudi Arabia is not a normal Arab country. It's the custodian of the holy places. So, um, it, you know, it, and because it's the custodian of the holy places, it just cannot walk away from the Palestinians. In the same way that the United Arab Emirates and, and those other countries are able to do, and even, and even they have issues with their own populace when it comes to how their population feels about the government relationship right. with Israel. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So let's end here. Uh, we sit here as we enter another election year of foreign policy sort of taking a back seat beyond aid to Ukraine. I mean, I guess China would be the other big issue that is up for discussion. But we have been seeing the, you know, the rise of nationalism, populism. Let's take care of ourselves. I mean, I even hear it, Robert, from people, you know, who look at the, you know, what happened in Maui and they connect it to, well, why is Ukraine getting all that aid? And why can't we give more to Maui and take care of things at home? And we do see at least the Republican Party has, you know, flipped here. At least part of it is flipped. There's a debate within it about what the U.S. role is in the world. 
So as you wrote this book, and as you think, you know, you sit here back in the U.S. about the lessons from the past 20 years, the limits, the power and limits of the U.S. military, our foreign policy, where does the U.S. stand, sort of bringing your analysis to the domestic situation here and, uh, and our role globally? Well, it's very hard for an American president to commit troops abroad you know, in this domestic situation, because the, the, the domestic situation argues for more commitment, financial commitment, economic commitment to fix America's problems at home, you know? And so troops abroad are a no-go unless you can make the argument that there is a, you know, that there is a, an, a you know, there's a real palpable easy to communicate in 30 seconds, security threat to the United States. And Ukraine does not do that. You know, Taiwan might do that in the sense that um, if the Chinese were to, if it were to become clear that the West, the U.S. cannot defend Taiwan, then countries from Japan in the north to Australia in the south would essentially see the passing of American power and would have to make side deals with China. Um, and that would affect our trade, our economy, etc. Because the Far East is really, to the degree that any geographic part of the earth matters in economics, the Far East is the first among equals, not Ukraine and Russia. So you think the, the U.S. would face more pressure to defend Taiwan with more weapons, but actually troops on the ground than we ever faced in Ukraine? Yeah. I mean, of course, it would depend how it would unroll. You know, you know, if the Chinese were to have a real subtle policy of cyber attacks, information warfare, it might be harder to get the U.S. public motivated. I don't know. But Ukraine, Russia is essentially about the stability of Europe. It's a moral question because after all, you, you, Russia invaded with tanks, committed massive human rights atrocities still going on along a 600 mile front, biggest battle in Europe we've seen since World War II, etc. But to make the argument that Taiwan and the Far East, the Western Pacific, matters more to the well-being of the United States than Russia, Ukraine, is an argument that can be made. I personally think the world is so interconnected and so intertwined, you cannot separate regions the way you used to. And one of the themes in my book is that the Middle East will be more and more determined, not less determined, but more by what happens in, in, in Asia, what happens in Europe, etc. Robert, thank you for this conversation. Fascinating. Appreciate it. The book is The Loom of Time, available wherever you get your books. Thanks for chatting. Thank you. I want to thank Robert Kaplan for that great conversation. You can buy his new book, The Loom of Time, wherever you get your books. We'll put a link in the show notes. All right, as we conclude here, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to podcast episodes like this one, extra content over on our members-only Instagram account, deep dives, Q&As, behind-the-scenes content, an explainer of what is really happening in the news by joining Mo News Premium over at mo.news. You're supporting what we're doing here at Mo News, supporting independent journalism. And an added plus, of course, is all that extra content. You can get it for just $7 a month. We're actually offering a 30-day free trial right now with the code MONEWSTRIAL. There's also a deal right now for two free months on the annual package. So you can check that all out over at mo.news slash premium. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here soon.